Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 2, Episode 74, Turkic Origin Story, The Seljuks, Part 1. This is what we have been waiting for. We finally got to the Seljuk Turks. This specific branch of Turkic nomads will do what the Gok Turks could have only dreamed of. They conquered the rich land of the Persian and Roman empires. But we must start this episode with the end of the Khazar Cognate. In our last episode, we discussed the Khazar Cognate's destruction at Sviatoslav's hands. But if we go back a few years, when Khazaria was at its full strength, we will be able to properly tell this origin story. The Khazars were the true inheritors of the Western Gok Turk Empire. They were the ones to take control of the most land, but also the most strategic land. They inherited the trade with the great empires, their social structure, and their authority. It wasn't just the land within Khazaria, but the surrounding land as well. Many smaller Turkic tribes to the east of the Khazars paid tribute, or taxes, to the Khazars. A Turkic tribe that settled the land directly east of the Khazars was known as the Oguz Turks. The Oguz Turks are very important to this story. But they start off as such small players on the field. Unlike their Khazar neighbors, the Oguz were mostly grazers. They roamed the flat plains of modern-day Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan along the eastern side of the Caspian Sea. Even though there were permanent settlements and cities in the region, the Oguz Turks mostly grazed and roamed the grasslands like any other nomadic people. But these Turks weren't fully autonomous. The Oguz paid their tribute to the Khazars. Within the Oguz tribe were princes and warlords, and one of these warlords was a man named Tukak. He was a bey, which was kind of like a prince or lord during the Gokturk Cognate. A Persian book called the Malik Name references a man named Tukak, who once served the great Khazar Khan. If Tukak served under the Khazar Khan, then there is a very, very, very good chance that he would have come into contact with Jewish traders. In fact, it would almost be impossible for them to never have encountered a Jew before. But it is also possible, if we ignore everything that Professor Stamfer says, that the warlord, or bey, Tukak, may have converted to Judaism himself. And we're not saying he did. But the spectrum of possibilities goes from rare encounters with Jewish traders on the very far left of the spectrum to having converted to Judaism himself on the very far right end of the spectrum. Again, we're not saying he did, just that he could have. We'll let you decide. 
When the Kievan Rus invaded Kazaria and sacked their capital, it put the final nail into the coffin. Kazaria was no more. Some members of the Khazar tribe survived, but they more or less fled. Kind of like the Spartans after the Theban sacred band defeated them. Yes, they were still there, but no one cared anymore. However, the Peshniks were able to tear through the Khazar Cagnate and scoop up any wealth they had left behind. The stability of the Khazars was no more, and the lucrative trading paradise was lost. But that didn't mean the Silk Road vanished. Traders still made their way through the area, but now it was overrun by Peshneg Turks, and Peshnegs were much more violent than Khazars. Pretty soon the entire area that once belonged to the Khazars was now controlled by the Peshnegs, including the land won by the Kievan Rus. At times the Kievan Rus and the Peshnegs worked together, but that did not mean they were allies. When Sviatoslav hired Peshneg warriors to help him conquer Bulgaria, they worked well together. But as soon as something went wrong for Sviatoslav, like losing a war against the Roman Empire, the Peshnegs attacked the Kievan Rus, massacred everyone in the group, then dragged King Sviatoslav out in front of everyone and beheaded him ISIS-style, only to take it a few levels beyond ISIS and boil the head in hot water then infuse it with silver to make a drinking cup. Because there is very little written history about Tukak, we don't know that much about him, other than the fact that he was a bay in the Oguz tribe. But we do know that he objected to his men raiding other Turks. The Turks had once been a great unified empire that stretched the entire Eurasian steppe, and now that they had been reduced to squabbling tribes raiding into each other's lands, if they were going to raid... They should just target non-Turkic people. After Kazaria's collapse and the Peshnegs' rise, the Oguz tribe continued with their way of life. But things were changing. The region's geopolitics had changed, and the climate was also changing. Nothing was stable, and tribes had to move around just to find enough pastures for their horses. The small tribe that was commanded by Tukak left the main Oguz Turks and migrated further east. They were tired of the Oguz raiding other Turkic tribes, and they kind of wanted nothing to do with it. It is said that the dispute between Tukak and the Khan of the Oguz was so great that it almost came to a fistfight. But the disagreement was settled. However, in 924 CE, give or take, Tukak's life came to an end, and Tukak's son was named leader of the small tribe. And this is where the story of the Turks takes an interesting turn, for the son's name was Seljuk. With Seljuk now leading his small tribe, we should step back and look at the map. Kazaria is still strong at this time, and the Oguz paid tribute to the Khazars. The Oguz often served as commanders in the Khazar Wars, but in the 960s, the entire Khazar Cognate came to an end. The Rus sacked their capital and conquered the west, while the Pechenegs swept in from the east and basically took over all the land north of the Crimea. Including a lot of lands the Kievan Rus had taken from the Khazars. It was a chaotic time. 
So Seljuk and 100 of his horsemen left the area and migrated east. Taking only 100 horsemen most likely meant 100 horsemen, plus their families. So there could have been as many as 500 people in this small caravan. But the records also state that he had an abundance of livestock, including camels and sheep. And when I say an abundance, I mean thousands. 1,500 camels and 50,000 sheep, to be precise. So why did they leave? Well, if you look at the politics of the time, it's easy to say because the Khazars were destroyed and it was the best time to leave while they still could. But there's the other possibility. Drought. The climate has had such an impact on every civilization up until this point. Why would it not affect the Turks in the 960s? There's an argument that the reason the Seljuks migrated east was to find better pasture for their animals because the drought had made it impossible to live where they had once dwelled. The destination for Seljuk and his small caravan was the city of Jand. Jand was located to the east, around modern-day Pakistan. This city was established along the banks of a river that flowed out of the great Himalayan mountains. The city was home to both settled and steppe people. Some would say it was a gateway between the settled lands of the south and the nomadic lands of the north. The fact that Seljuk traveled to a city might suggest there was a climate issue at hand. But this is not an important part of the story. What's important is that the city of Jand had Islamic people living there. Having already been exposed to Judaism through the Khazar Khaganate, Islam would not be that alien. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we do know that it did happen. Seljuk converted to Islam. And not the Shia Islam of the Abbasid Caliphate either, but Sunni Islam. Another fascinating event happened at this time. Turkic nomads from the steppe, from other tribes, also fled the steppe lands and arrived in the city of Jand. Here they met Seljuk, and they also converted to Islam. This also suggests there was a drought in the steppe lands. For Turkic tribes from far, far away, having nothing to do with the chaos of the collapse of the Khazar Khaganate, made their way to Jand. And here they met Seljuk, and they too converted to Islam. As more and more Turks arrived in Jand, they found themselves as outcast people. They were not the civilized men and women of the great civilizations to the south. They were nomadic bandits. There were many different tribes on the steppe that didn't belong to anything. And who knows if they truly knew the history of the great Turkic cognate, the Gok Turks of Tengri. But at this time, there were the Islamic civilizations to the south and the barbarians to the north who rode horses and lived in tents. Converting to Islam was a form of unification and purpose. It was the first time Turks could unify since the fall of the great Gok Turk Empire. While Seljuk lived in Jand, 
an emissary from the Oguz Turkic tribe arrived to collect their taxes. Only this time, the Seljuks refused. The reason was that they owed nothing to non-believers. And this caused turbulence between the Oguz tribe, which still lived in the steppelands, and the Seljuks, who now lived in Jand. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. In 1009, Seljuk passed away. It is said that he lived to be well over 100 years old. While Seljuk lay in his deathbed, well over the age of 100, 107 according to some sources, the world around them was changing. Persia, the land that had once been dominated by the Abbasids, but as the Shia Caliphate collapsed, the Samanids took control of the old Persian Empire. They were Persian, but were also Sunni Muslims. The Samanids controlled everything from modern-day Iran to the Stans, that is, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. This is the world Seljuk came into when they migrated to Jand. But everything was changing. Two new powers were on the rise, one from the south and another from the northeast. In the south, a group of Turkic slaves rose up and took their independence from the Samanids. So, just to be clear, this can get confusing. The Islamic Persians owned slaves, just like everyone else in the world. But the Persian slaves were mostly made up of Turks. These Turkic slaves spoke Persian, and they dressed Persian, and acted Persian, but they were slaves. And they were also Turks. Many of these Turks were soldiers in the army, which is not that uncommon in history. A slave army. Well, these Turkic slaves rose up and completely overthrew their Persian overlords. But they didn't overthrow the Samanids with Tengrism. They were still Muslims, and culturally, they were still Persian. In the east, the old eastern Gok Turk cognate, that is, the fractured Turkic tribes, started to unify, and soon a new empire from the east encroached upon Central Asia. If you go even further east, the once mighty Tang dynasty had collapsed, and a new dynasty inherited the northern portions of China, and they were called the Liao dynasty. The Liao dynasty was hell-bent on eradicating any Turkic tribe in the Eurasian steppe that posed a threat to China. As the Liao dynasty conquered the Eurasian steppe lands north of China, they pushed all remaining Turks further west. With these new powers coming to the front of the stage, it meant that more and more Turks were fleeing to Central Asia. What they ran into was a Seljuk tribe. And as more and more Turks arrived in Jand, 
more and more Turks converted to Sunni Islam. It was a perfect storm. Soon Seljuk's men grew from 100 horsemen to tens of thousands of warriors. But by this time, Seljuk was long dead. So who was leading the Turkic tribes at this time? It was Seljuk's oldest son, Aslan Israel. Now here is a very fun fact for you. Aslan literally translates into the lion. And Aslan is also the name of the lion from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now this is either a huge coincidence, or it is the source of the name Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Seljuk also had five sons, and it seems as though they were all named after Old Testament figures. The eldest son was named Aslan Israel, or Israel Aslan. Michal, or Michael, Musa, or Moses, Yusuf, or Joseph, and Jonas, or Jonah. If all five of his sons were born before the conversion to Islam, then it would stand to reason he may have been a Jewish convert before turning to Islam. If these sons were born after the conversion to Islam, then don't you find it strange that he didn't name any of his children after the Prophet Muhammad? While Seljuk's sons and the tribe remained in the city of Jand, politics started to boil over between the Ghaznavids and the Karkanids. There are so many names here, and it might be difficult to follow along without a visual map, so we'll simplify it a little. The Ghaznavids were the power in the south, in Persia. And the Karkanids was the power in the north, in Turkmenistan. Well, really all this stands in Central Asia. When a man tried to seize control of the city of Transoxiana, Aslan Israel took his thousands of horse warriors to go help him out. Well, that did not go too well. And the sultan from the Ghaznavids rode up north with his army and defeated the usurper and imprisoned Aslan Israel, the eldest son of Seljuk. So the Seljuks made their first power move, and they failed. Despite having thousands of warriors, Aslan Israel was not able to defeat the Sultan. But his massive army was big enough to spook the Sultan. He didn't like this new band of Turks. They were growing far too strong and weren't loyal soldiers of the Sultan. Now, according to the history, Dr. Jean-Paul Roux Aslan Israel was captured in this battle. But in the Islam Encyclopedia, the story is a little different. This account says that the Sultan of the Ghaznavids tricked Aslan and his son by inviting them to dinner. And once they sat down to eat, guards rushed in and arrested both men. Perhaps the Sultan thought that by imprisoning Aslan Israel, these Turks would just disband and go their own way. And in some small way this did happen. Some of the Turks joined the Ghaznavids right there, while others just left and rode west. But the bulk of the Turks still living in Jand remained fiercely loyal to Seljuk's family. While Aslan Israel was in captivity, the Turkic leaders struggled to find a new leader. 
and in the end, the two main factions claimed leadership. One was the son, Musa, or Moses. And we should note right now that not all of the sources agree Musa was a son of Seljuk. But the other claimants to the tribe leader were the two sons of Seljuk's second oldest son, Mikhail, or Michael. Their names were Chagri and Tugril. This was not a civil war among the tribe, but more of a dispute that had pretty high tensions. And throughout their lives, they tried over and over again to negotiate the release of their uncle. But the Ghaznavids never caved, and Aslan Israel never made it out. He died in that prison. Now, it's probably important for us to define a term here. For we said the Ghaznavids were ruled by a sultan. But what is a sultan? We know what a caliph is. It is the successor to the Prophet Muhammad and the spiritual and secular leader of the Islamic world. They were not messengers of God who could add to the Quran, but were more like preservers of the Quran and Muhammad's teachings. And by this time in our narrative, there are two caliphs, the Fatimid Caliph and the Abbasid Caliph. Actually, and they're both... Shia. That's weird. No Sunni. Oh well. Well, we have Anglicans and Presbyterians. That's true. None of them are popes. No. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. But how is this different than a sultan? Well, the term sultan starts right here with the Ghaznavids. The Ghaznavids, for all intents and purposes, were its own independent kingdom, kind of like an emirate. But the Ghaznavids didn't want to break ties with the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, officially. They minted their own coins, but made sure to keep the Caliph's name on the coin and make sure it was the biggest text. The Ghaznavids even came to the aid of the Abbasid Caliph when he needed help. So the leader of the Ghaznavids needed to come up with his own title. One that said he was the military commander and ruler of his new mini-empire, but also a title that didn't challenge the Caliph. So now we know who the very first sultan was, where he came from, and what he did. He was Mahmud of Ghazna, and he was from the Ghaznavid Empire in Persia, and he imprisoned Seljuk's eldest son, Aslan Israel. The Seljuk tribe seems to have worked out their leadership problem. Instead of deciding which of the three would rule in Seljuk's place, all three appear to have governed together. They roamed the land, but didn't seem to control any of the lands yet. The Seljuks found themselves squeezed between the Ghaznavid Empire to the south and the Karkhanid Empire to the north. 
Another fun fact, both these empires were Turkic in origin, and both had converted to Islam. But the Seljuks and their thousands of warriors were a part of neither. They were always on the move, in typical nomadic fashion, taking all of their belongings, women, children, and livestock with them. It appears as though they were still living in yurts at this time. Chagri, Tugril, and Musa found a much more lucrative way of earning a living, called a side hustle to their livestock trade. They outsourced their men in the form of mercenaries. There were thousands of them, and they were brave and valiant warriors, like any Turkic tribe of the day. And so the Seljuks found themselves fighting in a battle against the Karakanids in Central Asia. Unfortunately, they were not successful, and after a terrible defeat in battle at the city of Bukhara, the Seljuks found themselves on the run. Their entire tribe traveled across the Iranian plateau and through the mountains until they arrived in the province of Khorasan. The only problem was, Khorasan was located in the Ghaznavid Empire. But they didn't have to look too far to find a Ghaznavid official who would grant them safe haven. It just so happened that a very corrupt Ghaznavid official was looking for a band of mercenaries that would help him conquer the city inside of Khorasan. The Seljuks needed safe passage and a place to rest, while the corrupt official needed an army and a place to conquer. It was a match made in heaven. This Ghaznavid official hired the Seljuks to besiege and capture the city of Nassau. The funny thing, though, this Ghaznavid died before the plan could be carried out. So now the Seljuks were homeless, in a province of a hostile empire, overlooking a city that they could easily conquer themselves. It almost seems like the Normans in southern Italy all over again. Unlike the Normans, though, the Seljuks were not bloodthirsty conquerors looking for fame and fortune. The Seljuks were homeless. They were a very powerful force, but they were also a society. They weren't a band of mercenaries. They were families. Their wives and children and the elderly were with them. So a different strategy was used here. The Seljuks went to the city of Nassau and met with their leader. They sat down and tried to come to an agreement. In fact, the two leaders actually hit it off. The Seljuks said they were tired of wandering through the great empires and wanted a better life for their families. They wanted to live peacefully in the province of Khorasan, where their families would be safe. They even offered to serve under the Ghaznavid Sultan and would defend the province from other invading Turks. How different would the world be today if the Sultan actually took them at their word and gave the Seljuks a safe place to live? I guess we'll never know, for the Sultan refused this most reasonable request. Probably because he saw firsthand just how large their numbers were and knew they would always be strong enough to challenge his authority. The Sultan refused and instead organized an army to march out and destroy the Seljuks. In June of 1035 CE, the Sultan's army arrived on the plains of Nassau. They were going to wipe the Seljuks off the face of the earth. As the army marched through the plateau, they were ambushed by Seljuks and utterly defeated. 
This was a terrible blow to the credibility of the Ghaznavids. And the victory against the Ghaznavids emboldened the Seljuks. Their modest request for a place to live in peace quickly turned into demands. But the Sultan was a stubborn man, and he declined the Seljuks' demands, and this only emboldened them further. And within the next couple of years, the Seljuks raided the entire province of Khorasan, capturing several major cities for themselves. In fact, only one major city in the entire province of Khorasan remained in the Sultan's hands, and this forced the Ghaznavids to send more and more troops into the province to kick the Seljuks out. The Seljuks would break apart, flee in multiple directions, only to circle back and pelt the Ghaznavids with more arrows. Once the Ghaznavids were scattered, it was no problem for the Seljuks to ride in and peg off every straggler until the entire army was defeated. Not to mention, they could spook the elephants and break up their formations. And what resulted were total victories for the Seljuks. Again and again, the Sultan of the Ghaznavids sent in more armies with more war elephants. And again and again, the Seljuks defeated them. In May 1040, the Ghaznavids and the Seljuks met for a final showdown near the city of Dandanakin. At this battle... The Seljuks had approximately 16,000 horse riders, all of them battle-hardened with the confidence of many military victories. The Ghaznavids had every last soldier they could muster sent to this battle, and unlike the Seljuks, they were demoralized, hungry, tired, and petrified. The Ghaznavids were so thirsty from days of marching, and their water was depleted, and their food was gone. It didn't matter that they had dozens of war elephants, and cavalry units, and thousands of infantry soldiers. Their entire army was already on the brink of collapse before the battle even started. Luckily for the Ghaznavids, they found a small oasis but they needed to stay in formation in order to properly drink from the water and stay prepared for battle. The men in the army quickly devolved into arguing over who would get to eat and drink first. And soon the arguing turned into fighting, and the entire cohesion of the army fell apart. Sitting on the side of the plateau, the Seljuks watched the entire Ghaznavid army break into a fight. They used this opportunity to ride in fast from both flanks. They got within firing range and pelted the Ghaznavids with arrow fire. The skies filled with black arrows and struck the Ghaznavids from both sides. There was a chaotic scramble as the soldiers on the sides of the Ghaznavid army fell dead. And the rest of the army tried to get into formation, but they found themselves stuck behind the bodies of their fallen comrades, only to take arrows themselves. Without ever getting into close quarter combat range, the Seljuks picked off every single soldier in the Ghaznavid army. There was no running away, 
as a wall of dead and dying soldiers trapped the army in the center, only for them to be systematically picked off. The end result was a total victory for the Seljuks. After this victory, the Seljuks regrouped and went on high alert. They knew the Ghaznavids would not tolerate such a defeat and soon would send another army to get revenge on them. But as days turned into weeks and no one came for them, they eventually came to the realization that they had completely wiped out the Ghaznavid army. No more soldiers were coming for them, for they were all dead. And so the Seljuks scrambled their men and went on campaign in the province of Khorasan, securing the entire province for themselves. The Seljuks went from a homeless nomadic group to a land-holding empire. Only instead of living in Khorasan, serving the Sultan of the Ghaznavids, they now owned the province and everything within it. However, the once rich province was now devastated by years of war. The armies sent by the Ghaznavid Sultan had been roaming the countryside, raiding the farms for food, and trampling the grasslands with their horses and elephants. But the province now belonged to Tugrul and he quickly set upon restoring the prosperity of the once rich province. The countryside was plagued with bandits and raiders, and the Seljuks sent their riders out on search-and-destroy missions, ridding the province of such pests. This is the moment that defined the Seljuks from other Turkic warlords. Instead of sacking the cities within the province, Tugrul made sure to govern over his new subjects instead of plundering them. Chagri was not so inclined, and wanted to raid and plunder the riches of the province, while his brother, Tugrul, said he would rather commit suicide than watch his brother commit such atrocities. Tugrul then went to the throne of the old sultan, and proclaimed himself to be the new sultan, the first Seljuk sultan. He stated that they were strangers to the lands, did not know the customs of the Persians, and sought counsel from the Islamic judges put in place by the former regime. From this point forward, the Islamic traditions of the Persian world were blended with the Turkic traditions from the steppe, changing the culture forever. Taking from the tradition of the Ghaznavids, the Seljuks minted their own coins but maintained that the spiritual leadership still rested with the caliph in Baghdad. Three leaders of the Seljuk tribe then spread out in different directions, conquering more lands from the Ghaznavid Empire, expanding the Seljuk influence even further. All the while, the Ghaznavids organized more armies to try and retake the land lost to the Seljuks, but these attempts were futile as the Seljuks crushed every army sent from the Sultan hiding in India. As the Seljuks expanded, they focused very little attention on the cities. Because the Seljuks were Turkic nomads, they focused their attention on the countryside, taking the rich plains for their herds and animals. Soon they had conquered all of the countrysides for themselves and left most of the great cities 
to the old princes of the Abbasid Caliphate. If you were living in one of the great Abbasid cities, you might not have known anything had changed. But if you were a farmer living in the countryside, you would have found yourself under the direct control of the Seljuks. The Turks didn't care for these big cities. It wasn't worth their trouble. But very quickly, these cities found themselves completely surrounded. They were like tiny little islands of the old Abbasid Caliphate, surrounded by a great sea of the new Seljuk Empire. So Dan, while we're doing this podcast, I couldn't help but think that these Seljuks and other nomadic people, they come from the steppes, which to me is grassland. Where do they get all their arrows from? Like We talk about millions of arrows, like arrows are made out of wood, aren't they? Like, where do they get it from? Okay, well, I looked it up, and on ancientorigins.net, it has a little section about the Mongolians. So they're a steppe tribe, so it'll be very similar. And it says here that the wood used to make the shafts was usually willow, birch, and juniper. So I guess, what is that, wooden bushes, shrubs? So How do you get a straight arrow out of that? Maybe they steamed them in. Well, they said they were two feet in length, roughly. So all you needed was a two-foot piece of wood that they could carve. Whittle it down. So, they found a way. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.